Welcome to another episode of Exploring Art Podcast, a Florida international student podcast for the creative curious. This will be hosted by Jose Rodriguez and Daniel Rodriguez. Today's episode is named after Wabi Sabi. It is a worldview centered on the acceptance of transience and imperfection. So today we're going to be looking at two well-known artists who have changed the world of art in numerous ways. First, we have Rafael Sanzio, usually known by his first name alone, Rafael, born on April 6th or March 28th, 1483. There's no definite date. He was an Italian painter and architect of the high Renaissance, celebrated for the perfection and grace of his paintings and drawings. Together with Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, he forms a traditional trinity of great masters of that period. Raphael was enormously productive, and despite his early death at 37, a large body of his work remains, especially in the Vatican. He was extremely influential in his lifetime, but after his death, the influence of his great rival Michelangelo was more widespread until the 18th and 19th century, when his more serene and harmonious qualities were again regarded as the highest models. His career falls naturally into three phases and three styles. First described by Giorgio Vasari, his early years in Umbria, then a period of about four years from 1504 to 1508, absorbing the artistic traditions of Florence followed by his last hectic and triumphant 12 years in Rome, working for two popes and their close associates. In 1491, his mother, Magia, died, followed by his father, who was already remarried on August 1st, 1494. Orphaned at 11, Raphael's formal guardian became his only paternal uncle, Bartolemo, a priest, subsequently engaged in litigation with his stepmother. He probably continued to live with his stepmother when not living as an apprentice with the master. He had already shown talent, according to Giorgio Vasari, who tells that Raphael had been a great help to his father. A brilliant self-portrait drawing from his teenage years shows his precocious talent. His father's workshop continued and probably together with his stepmother, Raphael evidently played a part in managing it from a very early age in Urbino. He came into contact with the works of Paolo Ucello, previously the court painter, and Luca Signorelli, who until 1488 was based in the nearby Cita di Castello. His early years, he was influenced by Perugino. It is nearly impossible to separate the style of Raphael in the early years from that of his master. Indeed, Raphael's young hand must have played a part in many of Perugino's major commissions. Raphael's debt to Perugino is evident when comparing marriage of the Virgin to Perugino's Christ handing of the keys to St. Peter. One can note the same array of foreground figures the same polygonal background temple, and the same intervening piazza. 
even the colors of the paintings are derived from Peregrino. The cloudless blue sky, the deep blues, roses and yellows, and the blue green of the hills. Despite the similarities, however, this work departs from Peregrino in form and space. The graceful figures are woven into a unity unknown in Peregrino's art. His middle years in Florence, Raphael was influenced stylistically by several local artists he befriended there. Most notable was Fra Bartomeo, from whom Raphael learned to replace the fragile grace of Peregrino with a more measured movement, with more gravity and grandeur. Raphael also adapted inventions in painting that connoisseurs would have immediately recognized as Leonardo da Vinci's. For example, Leonardo's compositional ideas lie behind Raphael's portrait of Maddalena Doni, and also the Florentine landscapes in which the figures are arranged into a pyramid or cone, with each part retaining a dynamic and organic relationship to others. Raphael's drawing style also changed in Florence, where more of his work was in pen and ink, often used as a rougher means of generating and exploring ideas as well as defining them. His sketches, perhaps made from memory, include work by Donatello, Michelangelo, and Leonardo. His later years in Rome, Raphael's oil technique developed, perhaps because of his contact with Venetian painting, but also in response to his increasing familiarity with fresco painting. In Rome, Raphael also showed growing interest in color and light as pictorial elements independent of line and form. The range of his impostal and some of his oil paintings has few parallels in the works of earlier artists, meaning this may have been one of his rare innovations. It is particularly evident in his paintings on canvas and his increasing use of the support is one of the aspects of his work that suggests his knowledge of Venetian art. More changes in style and technique can be observed in Raphael's drawings upon his arrival in Rome. There is a gradual abandonment of the metal point in favor of chalk and his use of the new medium of red chalk, especially for the studies for the female nudes in the Triumph of Galatea. Using a female nude model in itself was unusual. Raphael himself had previously employed boys as models for female figures. Despite these changes, Raphael's methods as a painter were remarkably consistent. A compositional study for the early St. Nicholas of Tolentino, Altarpiece shows his concern for underlying geometric structures and composition and his practice for studying each figure separately from a living model. From 1517 until his death, Raphael lived in the Palazzo Caprini lying at the corner between Piazza's Cosa Cavelli and Via Alessandrina in the Borgo. In rather grand style, in a palace designed by Bermonte, he never remarried, but in 1514 became engaged to Maria Bibibiena, Cardinal Medici Bibiena's niece. He seems to have been talking to this by his friend, the Cardinal, and his lack of enthusiasm seems to be shown by the marriage not having taken place before she died in 1520. He is said to have had many affairs, 
but a permanent fixture in his life in Rome was La Fornarina. Margarita Luri, the daughter of a baker named Francisco Luri from Siena who lived via del governo Vecchio. He was made a groom of the chamber of the Pope which gave him status at court and an additional income and also a knight of the Papal Order of the Golden Spur. Vasari claims that he had toyed with the ambition of becoming a cardinal, perhaps after some encouragement from Leo, which also may account of his delaying marriage. Raphael died on a Good Friday, April 6, 1520, which is possibly his 37th birthday. Vasari says that Raphael had also been born on a Good Friday, which in 1483 fell on March 28, and that the artist died from exhaustion, brought on by unceasing romantic interest while he was working on the Logia. Several other possibilities have been raised by later historians. In his acute illness, which lasted 15 days, Raphael was composed enough to confess his sins, received the last rites, put his affairs in order. He dictated his will, in which he left sufficient funds for his mistress's care, entrusted to his loyal servant, Baviera, and left most of his studio contents to Giulio, Romano, and Penny. At his request, Raphael is buried in the Pantheon. For the second artist, Reynolds was born in Plimpton in Devonshire on 16th of July, 1723. Seventh child in the large family of the Reverend Samuel Reynolds and Theophilia Potter, inspired to become an artist by Jonathan Richardson elevated essay on the theory of painting. Reynolds was apprenticed in 1740 to Thomas Hudson the most fashionable portraitist of the day, with whom he remained until 1743. After two years of independent practice in London and another two in his native Devonshire, Reynolds was introduced by his father's friend, Lord Edgecombe, to Commodore Augustus Keppel about the sail to the Mediterranean, who invited him to join his expedition. After a stay in Menorca, he spent over two years in Rome, from 1750 to 1752, returning through Florence, Venice, Northern Italy, Lyons, and Paris. He brought back with him Giuseppe Marchi, whom he employed as an assistant until the end of his life. Although he never received any academic training, his experience of Italy, his reverence for Raphael, Michelangelo and the Venetians, and the notebooks that he filled with drawings from classical antiquity and from the old masters were the foundation of his ideals and practice as a painter. Armed with introductions from Lord Edgecombe to Aristotelic sitters and immediately establishing his reputation in London with his masterly and dramatic full-length portrait of Capel in the pose of the Apollo Bevedere. Reynolds soon supplanted Hudson as the capital's leading portraitist, his only serious competitor being Ramsey. In 1759, he had more than 150 sitters. The following year, 
he brought a grand house on Leicester Fields, took on pupils and ran a coach. He never married. His household was run by his household was run first by his sister Frances and then by his niece Mary Palmer. The press of business was so great, especially in the middle years of his career, that as had been customary with a busy portraitist since the time of Lely, the drapery and subordinate parts of his portraits were usually largely executed by assistants, at first by Peter Toms and later by his own pupils. He employed the finest engravers to publish his principal compositions in mezzotint, a medium in which British 18th century printmakers excelled. He also contributed regularly to the expeditions, exhibitions, first of the Society of Artists, then of the Royal Academy. Though he was uninterested in politics and no courtier, his eminence was such that it was in inevitably he who was appointed first president of the Royal Academy of Arts in 1768. He was then knighted. In 1781, Reynolds visited Flanders and Holland where he was greatly impressed by the work of Rubens. In 1784, he was appointed principal portrait painter to the king in succession, in succession to Ramsey. The following year, he was commissioned by Catherine II of Russia to paint an historical picture of his own choosing. The infant Hercules was his largest and most ambitious work. Apart from experiencing chronic deafness, he had always enjoyed vigorous good health until he suffered a stroke in 1782. In 1789, he lost the sight of his left eye, and on 23rd February, 1792, he died in his home on Leicester Fields. He was given a quasi-state funeral and was buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. Sir Joshua Reynolds was an English painter specializing in portraits. John Russell said he was one of the most major European painters of the 18th century. He promoted the grand style in paintings, which depended on idealization of the imperfect. Sir Joshua Reynolds' discourse on art seems to build a principle of aesthetics. He refutes that the idea of beauty does not follow a rule. Rather, he puts emphasis on the principles that make a work of art beautiful, the principles that assist clearing the mind, confused heap of contradictory observations. The great painters follow the same principles of beauty. Reynolds believes that the artist should go to heaven for the search of ideal perfection and beauty, which are on earth and within us. They are a substratum of our own humanity. Empirical experience can explore artistic part of our own humanity. For this, the artists look beyond particularities because the whole of beauty and grandeur of the arts consists in being able to get above all singular forms, local customs, particularities, and details of every kind. Though nature is beautiful, it still has blemishes and defects, imperceptible to the ordinary man. It suffers from weakness and imperfection the artist tries to impose idea of beautiful form in nature. He corrects nature by herself, her imperfect state, or her more perfect. 
he makes out an abstract idea of forms more perfect than any one original. This is the great principle of art. Since art is not a divine gift, so neither is a mechanical trade. Its foundations are laid in solid science and practice. Though essential to perfection, can never attain that to which it aims, unless it works under the direction of principle. Genius produces art and takes produces judgment of art. Both genius and takes are born are inborn faculties of empirically sensitive mind. Taste determines prejudices and prejudice force us in the pursuit of taste. Beauty is the matter of taste. The idea of beauty is accomplished in the work of art with which it is natural for the mind to be pleased, whether it proceeds from simplicity, variety, uniformity, or irregularity. Whether the scenes are familiar or exotic, rude and wild, or enriched and cultivated, for it's natural for the mind to be pleased with all these in their turn. Truth can be pleased when its, when its taste is addressed. Truth is in uniform with taste. Truth varies as taste varies. Taste even stifles reason. That does not mean art should, not, should be away from reason. Reason helps on reflection and the process of art. Principles of taste are numerous that assist us to owe the value of different ranges of the art. The corrupt taste of the mind must be disallowed in the art because it breeds apparent. The pure and uncorrupted taste is the matter of uniformity of sentiments among humankind, leading us to the ideas of perfect beauty. The art criticism requires habits of speculation and abstraction. Since art belongs to the faculties, imagination, and sensibility of mind, art criticism should have foundation of the principles of those faculties. On the whole, the aim of art is to supply the natural deficiencies of things and so as to gratify the mind by the realization and embodiment and imagination. Art addresses not to the gross senses, but to the desires of the mind to that spark of divinity which we have within. Reynolds says about the skill of young artists, they should practice and go beyond mere imitation of, nat of nature to the excellences. They should achieve aesthetic quality. He goes on talking about genuine and false painters in his disclosures. Genuine painters shape their art from their grandeur thoughts. It is not the slavish following of the classical, but their grandeur efforts. He further distinguishes reason-based knowledge and enthusiasm and believes in inspiration and says that the painters to be simply the medium do not consider, consider reason. He says that such art does not provide knowledge. There has to be rational faculty. So are Raphael's depictions of the apostles and particularly of St. Paul's true, false, informative, misleading? They are misleading. When, Ron, when Reynolds says that inaccurate realistic art can be meaningful, what could he possibly have in mind? Reynolds is of the opinion that young artists should be analytical. There is no existence of inspiration. The eyes of genuine artists contemplate that provides them the commonality. Perfection is the imaginary thing and beauty can be found in totality.
the idea of beauty is invariable. An artist's job is to find that sort of beauty that is common to all. We should release us, which should release us from all the prejudices and focus on general things. The art should be addressed not to the eyes only, but through the eyes of the imagination. I want to thank you for joining us so much today. I really appreciate it. This concludes Exploring Art Podcast. Subscribe to Exploring Art Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us soon and remember to stay curious.